You're listening to FMGRadio.com. Welcome to Generation Reinvention, how baby boomers are changing the future, with your host, Brent Green. Several years ago, I read a controversial and critically acclaimed book entitled The Greater Generation in Defense of the Baby Boom Legacy. This book presents an articulate argument in support of the baby boomer generation, and it is an incisive offense aimed at the generation's many critics. As I wrote in my review on Amazon, this book presents a provocative journey into a generation's soul with tightly crafted pattern recognition, consensus validation, memory restoration, and achievement exaltation. It is defiantly uplifting while cautionary, weaving historical insights with perceptive, sometimes stinging commentary. And that's the focus of this episode of Generation Reinvention. The book's author is my guest today, and I promise you an engaging conversation, whether you embrace what boomers have accomplished or you are disgusted with the generation, among those who cannot wait until the very last boomer passes on to the great Woodstock in the sky. Leonard Steinhorn is a full-time professor of public communications at American University, His expertise includes American politics, culture and media, strategic communications, the presidency, and recent American history. He is author of The Greater Generation and co-author of By the Color of Our Skin, The Illusion of Integration and the Reality of Race. He has published in books, journals, The Washington Post, Salon, Politico, The International Herald Tribune, and many others. Professor Steinhorn was twice named American University Faculty Member of the Year. He serves as a political analyst for Fox 5 News in Washington, D.C., and before joining the AU faculty, spent 15 years as a political consultant and speechwriter. So I'd like to welcome to the show Lenny Steinhorn. Thank you, Brent, and it's always good to speak with you, and I admire all of your work and all of that, all of you all that you've accomplished over the years. Well, thank you, Lenny. I appreciate that. That's an excellent way to start the show. I'll back off a little bit. But anyway, it's good to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this opportunity. Let's begin at the beginning, Lenny, so we have everybody on the same page. Uh, Who are the baby boomers? And in your sense, how do you define them generationally speaking? Well, boomers are typically defined by demography, um, which is something I use a little bit, but not exclusively. The typical baby boom years are those who were born between 1946 and 1964. Um, But I don't think demographics get at the heart of what a generation is. Uh, What a generation really is is sort of a common experience, sort of a shared sensibility, driven by historical uh, incidents, uh, uh, history, the culture at the period uh, at that period of time. So, in many ways, I think of a boomer as somebody who is uh, old enough uh, to remember and uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, inauguration, uh, to experience it, maybe to be in college at that time, through somebody who lived through the end of the Vietnam War and those years. It's it's those young people at the time who experienced the highs and lows of this generation, the struggles of this generation, and how it shaped their worldview and consciousness. So 46 to 64 was a good benchmark, but it's more historical, experiential, cultural. That's the stuff that matters in terms of understanding a generation. Great. That helps a lot. Thanks. Now, uh, the generation before is called a number of things, the GI generation, is probably one of the most common, the World War II generation. Uh, But anyway, they are the parents of the boomers. And uh, what significant ways do they differ from boomers? Now, this is a big question, and we're going to be probably visiting that question in a number of ways. But in a succinct way, what are some of the essential differences between boomers and their parents culturally and socially speaking? Well, to understand boomers is to understand that the boomer generation in many ways rebelled against and changed America from 
the social values of their parents. Now, let's give the greatest generation, the World War II generation, their due. Uh, many of them struggled through the Depression, kept their heads up, confidence high and determination strong. And then they fought uh, a great war against the greatest enemy of freedom ever known to humankind, and they sacrificed, and they lived through it, and they secured freedom for the world. So nobody should ever take anything away from their accomplishments. But when they came home uh, and set up in America uh, that they said was in defense of freedom, they turned their they turned a blind eye to some of the uh, problems with our ideals that we had at home. So, yeah, some say that they fought their wars and therefore they came home and deserved to rest. But they also lived in a society um, in which uh, black people were told to say to stay separate and silent, in which women were told that they had to stay at home, in which anyone from a different religion was told to stay inconspicuous uh, and not be proud of who they were, where if you marched to your own drum, you were told to do it in a way that wasn't in the mainstream. Um, if you were gay and lesbian, you were told to stay in the closet. Uh, in effect, um, this was the conformist society that did not tolerate the great diversity of the American experience. And in fact, when boomers raised those issues, and said, this is wrong, we need to be more open as a society and a culture, their parents actually fought against them on that, and that's what created the generation gap. So to some extent, yes, we need to celebrate the World War II generation, but let's not put sort of sepia-tone lens on the 1950s and think it was sort of this wonderful, you know, uh, leave it to beaver neighborhood. It was a neighborhood which did not allow black people which uh, many people of different religions felt uncomfortable living in and which women had no opportunity to do anything but stay at home and uh, uh, be housewives. So that's the culture that boomers changed. And I think we're a far better society because boomers changed that culture. You, In your book, you describe the boomer DNA in a very interesting way. And that is liberally irrelevant or irreverent, excuse me, liberally irreverent and irreverently liberal. What do you mean by this? Well, uh, you know, one of the primary reading sources of the baby boom generation in the 1950s and 60s was Mad Magazine. Um, and you can't get any more irreverent than that. Mad <laughs> It took on every single uh, self-satisfied assumption of American society. It's, it took on the patriots who claimed what a great country we, we were, except for those minorities uh, and the Jews and all the troublemakers who were trying to you know, speak out and, and exercise their free speech. Um, so um, Mad Magazine basically said, you know, authority isn't always right. It's okay to be to make a little fun of it, have some fun fighting authority, um, and uh, you know it, it basically casts an eye of skepticism on unjust authority. So that's sort of the liberally irreverent and irreverently liberal. Um, you know, we had a great liberal tradition coming out of the New Deal, um, and yet baby boomers did not feel that that liberalism was meeting all the needs of their generation. It was a liberalism that did go a little slow on civil rights, that was uncomfortable um, with uh, rights of women, and that sent uh, uh, an entire generation off to a war that that liberalism could not justify. Um, so, uh, you know, boomers uh, are liberal in sensibility. Um, they are liberal socially. They agree with the core values of liberalism, but didn't always agree with the institutionalized liberalism that emerged out of the New Deal. Yeah, we're going to discuss that point a little more in detail. Of course, when you say what you have, uh, when we talk about generations, inevitably, there are generalities involved. And of course, when we talk about liberal uh, boomers and what that means. We can also think of people like uh, Rush, Limbaugh, and go, They are there are exceptions to the rules in there. But um, we'll come back to that. Um, one of the things that struck me in the book, one of those aha moments that I had with the book, is that um, 
your mind readers of a precipitating dissonance between America's founding ideals and the everyday facts of life that edged the young boomers toward democratic mobilization and, in effect, cultural revolution. Could you expand upon that thought a little bit? It's a profound uh, insight. Well, um, when you're growing up in a society that where you're told that it's the greatest and freest in the world, and yet you see uh, people being denied the right to vote, you see uh, pollution everywhere to the point that uh, in the late 1960s, if anyone who lives in Ohio might remember when the Cuyahoga River caught on fire. Um, when you see discontent among women who were constantly relegated to secretarial and administrative positions, regardless of how talented uh, uh, they are, um, when you see those things on a daily basis, um, you begin to uh, sort of put the reality of your life against the ideals that you were taught. And then you begin to say, you know, are we living up to those ideals as a society? And I think in many ways, boomers are a fundamentally idealistic generation that wanted to break the barriers of old and the hypocrisy of old and ask America to live up more to its great ideals. And you know what? I don't think I know a lot of people who would like to, you know, sort of turn the clock back and return to the social order of the 1950s. We're not everywhere we want to be, but you can't deny the fact that there's been enormous progress in social relations between races, that there's been enormous progress for women. What women uh, have been able to accomplish today would be considered science fiction or utopian fantasy in the 1950s. We've seen enormous progress in terms of religious pluralism or even people opting out of religion because they feel that's more right for them. We've seen enormous progress, though it's not perfect, on the environment. We've seen enormous progress in terms of including all sorts of different people who march to their own drums. So that really is in the very best tradition of what America ought to be. And in that sense, boomers have contributed a great deal to fulfilling the American ideal. Okay, well, let's take our first break because I have another direction I'd like to take the conversation. I don't want to begin now and then have to interrupt the direction of the flow. When we come back, I'd like to talk with Professor Lenny Steinhorn about boomer attitudes. There's four key ones that he identifies in his book, and we'll examine them in a little more detail when we come back. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at 1-800-470-4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. One of the things that I always try to do since I look at the boomer generation uh, a lot through the marketing filter is to figure out what are the values that we can say are fairly prevalent across the generation that are not necessarily political, they're not necessarily um, divisive social issues, but they are under undergirding attitudes, if you will, that make this generation distinct and can reach this generation motivationally with the right marketing message. So that's the way I look at it. And I have called upon people like Professor Lenny Steinhorn's work to help inform some of my thinking about that. So let's talk about boomer attitudes. And uh, you've kept it convenient in a sense there's four key ones that you identify. We've already touched on the first one a little bit, but let's talk about it a little more. Questioning authority. What is it about boomers that you that seems to be a consistent theme within the generation and, and I, I also would add a point. You, you wrote that it was authority that undermined itself, causing boomers to question authority. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so maybe we can begin there. And that's really a, a key quote. And you talk about these four sort of attitudes of baby boomers, and I think that's a far better way to understand the boomer generation uh, than uh, just simply a demographic or birth year. And right. you mentioned Rush Limbaugh earlier. Um, and in many ways, Rush Limbaugh sees himself as constantly questioning authority. Right. 
he sees himself as somebody who rejects the authority of what he perceives to be uh, the liberal establishment and is constantly going after them in completely irreverent uh, ways. So in that sort of very funny sense, even though Rush Limbaugh isn't necessarily somebody who's liberal-minded, although I think if somebody asked him, he would probably have to protect himself and say, yes, I agree with equal rights for women. Um, uh, but he does share that sort of uh, boomer perspective of questioning authority. So authority basically uh, in the 1960s when boomers were growing up, they were the ones who sent people off to the Vietnam War. They were the, uh, the committee chairs, the Southern segregationists who ran Senate and House committees that pretty much denied the rights of black people that pretty much uh, uh, sort of uh, used government powers to harass people in the anti-war movement. So all of a sudden, those who were in authority were acting in a way that undermined their authority. So for boomers seeing that, they go, authority is not given, it has to be earned. It has to be earned by good policies that respect the rights and wishes of the people and that respect the ideals of our society. Do that, and we're okay with authority. Don't do that. You've undermined your own authority, and we will question you and pick that apart. So there's a good reason why uh, a lot of boomers for years had question authority bumper stickers on their cars, because quite frequently it was the authority that itself undermined its legitimacy. And you see that strain sort of sort of throughout our culture these days. For example, uh, just go to uh, uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Yes. He's a boomer, right. and he really partakes of that whole idea that uh, you you know go after uh, the, these illegitimate authorities and their hypocrisies. But you also see it in other ways. How is corporate America structured for years? Command and control, structure and hierarchy. Um, what boomers did is they flattened those hierarchies and said, Everybody has value. Everybody can contribute. It's not just some sort of command and control workplace where the authority who has a name and a title is the sole judge. So I think boomers have you know, sort of taken that value, taken that attitude, and permeated it throughout our society, economy, and culture. You make a very interesting point that hits me personally because I, uh, early in my career, was the advertising manager for a resort hotel and commanding structure as you described was really operating in that environment in fact uh, I was a director of advertising that was my title and there were other managers on my level in the organization but we were referred to as officers <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was definitely command and control from the top down uh, that generation left and the person that's been running the resort hotel for the last 20 years and is famous for being egalitarian and well-liked at all levels of the staff, coincidentally, is a baby boomer. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I, in my own work experience in life, I've seen that happen, that shift in direction. So are we a bunch of cynics and satirists as a result of our anti-authoritarian Mad Magazine upbringing? Well, you know, that's a really good question, but embedded in that uh, sort of skepticism toward authority is a sense that authority can be good if it wasn't hypocritical and if it fulfilled its ideals and wasn't just into exerting power over other people. So coupled with that questioning of authority uh, is is the uh, whole notion that boomers are sort of really committed idealists. You know, they often say that a cynic is a frustrated idealist. So to some extent, you have that cynical side of the boomer generation that looks at authority scans, but you also have that idealistic side, which says that we believe in the America that our, told, that our parents told us was the case. Now we want to be able to fulfill that in very fundamental ways in terms of social relations, culture, society, race, gender, uh, and all of those various uh, uh, sort of ways that we define ourselves. 
So I think boomers are fundamentally idealistic. You look at almost all the documents that came out of the 1960s, and they were driven by a belief that America is and could be better than it was. And it deals with race. It deals with personal fulfillment. It deals with women. Um, and, and so uh, that's really the idealistic side of the equation for boomers. So boomers distrust illegitimate authority and want that authority to be more consistent with the ideals of our country. You know, that kind of uh, segues nicely into the next attitude that you discuss in your book, which is a nation of ideals, which obviously refers to the idealism that some of us, if not all of us, carry. Uh, And noted in that context is the uh, saying, the saw, if you will, the personal became the political. What happened? Well, basically, um, you know, you can't commit yourself to a nation of equality an equal opportunity if, let's say, in your very home, the uh, one of the partners in that home didn't have full equality to fulfill her goals and dreams in life. Um, so you had to turn those ideals, not just from some larger principles about pushing for laws and civil rights or pushing for laws on gender equality or ending the Vietnam War, but you had to push for them in your own values, attitudes, and in the norms of your society. Because once the norms change, and once people buy into those norms, and once they start living according to those norms in their own lives, then the rest of society will transform and change. And I think one of the greatest accomplishments of the baby boom generation is to change the norms of society and to make them far more consistent with the American ideal. We have basically said that you know, diversity, pluralism, inclusion are moral values. That discrimination is immoral in our society. We are really the first generation that basically said when you conduct yourself with bias, bigotry, and when you discriminate against others, that is immoral and unacceptable. You know, for years, centuries, our nation turned a blind eye toward that. Boomers said no longer and just didn't put it into law. It put it into people's hearts. So that idealism got coded into people's individual lives. And that's how you begin to change institutions from within. You know, the point I've sometimes made uh, to others, and it does cause people to stop and hesitate and obviously think for a moment, is that uh, I know very few baby boomer women, particularly leading-edge baby boomer women, the women that got into the workforce in the beginning in the early 70s and then through the 70s, who personally did not have some experience of sexism in the workplace. And that could have been, Betty, go get us a cup of coffee. Or, Betty, why don't you go take care of the paperwork that the guys and I will sit down and discuss the details of our strategy. Whatever it was that it happened and they experienced it. And so they confronted it on a very personal level while the macro level was going on with the larger arguments and discussions about women's rights. So is that kind of how you see it, that the the sense of the, you know, the political becoming personal in the individual lives of boomer women and men? Absolutely. And it's the courage to be able to act on it because you know that the norms are changing and going to validate you. I know somebody who is an executive director of an organization here in Washington and uh, she was uh, walked up to some bigwig uh, male uh, who was at a conference that they were involved in, and she introduced herself, and the person said, oh, by the way, can you go and get me a cup of coffee? And her response was, I'll be glad to get you a cup of coffee, and by the way, my name is so-and-so, and I'm executive director of this organization. And all the color drained out of this guy's face because he realized right then and there the uh, sort of uh, bigoted and uh, old-fashioned assumptions that was driving his interpersonal relations and how he was seeing somebody solely through his uh, sort of outmoded sense of gender and not who this person was and what they've accomplished. Um, So yes, the personal becomes very political in, in in that sense because ultimately you begin to change attitudes, not only on a society-wide level, but on a one-by-one interpersonal level, how you raise your kids, how you deal with your colleagues, how you fight for a fight against injustices and inequality. So I think that really is a big part 
of, uh, of uh, implementing those ideals by making them personal, and boomers were very big on that. Great. Well, that's very helpful. The third item in your list of boomer attitudes is do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. Of course, uh, maybe we need to explain what that means for those that are much younger than boomers that might be listening to the program. They won't go, what? Uh, but it means something to us boomers uh, who had anything to do with uh, uh, computer cards or uh, old-style computers uh, where the cards were shoved into the machines. Um, but anyway, I'm not explaining that particularly well, but what's your view on technology and the relationship between boomers and technology? Because uh, some one of the stereotypes is that we shun technology only to turn around and grasp it with enthusiasm when we all became quote-unquote yuppies. Yeah, it's a really good and important point because uh, you have to dial back uh, years ago to how technology was seen. Um, technology, you know, was big and it was powerful and it was seen as very, very impersonal. And some of the largest corporations were sort of organized according to that technological model, impersonal. They were machines. Um, and so Boomer said, no, 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 no. The individual counts, the personal counts. We've got to put ourselves and throw ourselves into the gears of those machines and shut them down. But Boomer's didn't reject the promise of technology. They simply rejected at that point how technology was being manifested because one of the great technological innovations, which most people forget in this age of iPhones, was the transistor radio. And what the transistor radio enabled boomers to have was a little bit of technology in their own hands where they can turn the dial on the radio and listen to the music and values and political conversations of their own youth culture. Once technology became personal, became small, became manageable, became something that people themselves could control, that was the technology that boomers found liberating. So boomers saw the negative side of technology in that it controlled others, that it created terrible industrial waste and pollution, that it created a machine-like bureaucracy and technocracy in society. That was the technology they rejected. But they liked the wonders of technology. They all loved the moon landing and what that brought us and the space program and the wonder and awe of what that brought us. But they also loved how technology could become personal. And it's no surprise that it was a bunch of boomers who pretty much created not only the personal computers, no longer mainframe computers, but eventually with someone like Steve Jobs, the iPod, the iPhone, mobile technology, technology in your hands that you could control. So technology then facilitated individual freedom and knowledge and liberation rather than oppressed it. So boomers never rejected technology as a whole. They just rejected how it was being manifested earlier on in their lives. Perhaps the worst form of manifestation was the atomic bomb, which was so creepy. And every single boomer knows that when you're in, in grade school or high school, you were jumping under your desk during air raid drills because you could see the consequences of technology gone awry. So boomers like technology when it serves the individual, but not when it oppressed the individual. Absolutely. And of course, I'm thinking when you're talking about uh raids and so forth, atomic uh, threats, uh, practice sessions, we would duck and cover, uh, which was uh, ridiculous to think that you'd get under your desk and have <laughs> any sense of survivability of an atomic weapon hitting your city. Uh, but the other point that I think about, because sometimes this has been forgotten, but a very early catchphrase for Apple Computer was the power to be your best, which was truly an empowerment, self-empowerment message. and still remains the driving force, if you will, even though they don't use those words today in Apple Computer now, that they give you self-empowerment through their mm -hmm. technologies. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very good point. Well, let's take another quick break. I want to come back and talk about the fourth item in the list of attitudes that are characteristic of the boomer generation, a biggie, never trust anyone over 30. We'll be right back. Be sure to join us at fmguniversity.com. That's where we can turn your passion into business within 30 days. Put some fun back into your life, show you how to make money, and do good for yourself and others. That's why we are called FMG, Fun Money Good. 
Get started today. Go to fmguniversity.com. This last item on your list of boomer attitudes that are very overarching and characteristic is of interest to me for a number of reasons, Lenny. Um, But the essential aspect of that point, as I understand it, as you make it in the book, is that to be contemporary, one must remain youthful. Is that a fair summary of what you believe is true for the boomers? Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, some people make uh, fun of boomers saying, oh, they never want to grow up. They always want to stay young. Um, But I think it's uh, that's just sort of like a little bumper sticker, a cartoon characterization of baby boomers. Baby boomers, certainly many of the most consequential and historically significant moments of their lives took place when they were young. But boomers then took those values and applied those values throughout the rest of their lives. But there's a difference between fixating on being young and being focused on being youthful. Because what youthful represents to the baby boom generation is being able to adapt to change. And boomers, perhaps more than any other generation, have seen enormous change throughout their lives in ways that we can barely comprehend. Uh, And historians will have to sort of figure out and make sense of long after we're gone. But we have lived through those changes, and to be able to adapt to them, to build a new economy based on them, to build a new society based on them, to redefine gender relations and social relations, you have to be youthful because youthfulness enables you to adapt to change. You know, America is an interesting country. We are the first country in human history to celebrate uh, uh, youth over the aged. Um, And in most countries, you look to the aged for wisdom, but in America, we look to youth, and there's two core historical reasons. One, immigration. It was young people that were able to teach their elders about American society. It was the younger generation, the kids of immigrants, who said, who learned the language and learned the mores and learned the customs and taught their parents how to adapt. But it's also through technology. Young people adapt to technology more quickly than anybody else. And being the most highly technological society in the world, we elevate youth because they're able to adapt more quickly. Boomers don't want to be left behind. They grew up in an era in which you know, their parents weren't adapting to some of these changes. They certainly weren't adapting to the social changes. They were rejecting them. And they sort of lived in so these homes in which you put plastic covers over your living room furniture. You didn't want to grow old and you didn't want to grow sort of uh, resistant to the changes in society. So really this is about youthfulness, not about being young, about adapting to change, not resisting change. And I think that has enabled baby boomers to be a very nimble generation, to be able to redefine what it's like to be in a family, in a community, in a business, and to be able to sort of help develop these technologies that really are transforming our world today. So youthfulness, very key characteristic of boomers, and I would assume a key characteristic of every generation to come from there. Yeah. One of the things that that catchphrase always reminds me of is that Jack uh, Weinberger, who was a free speech activist, and and he was in an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, he was asked a couple of questions that pretty much pissed him off. So what he did was just say, just never trust anyone under the age of 30. And that became, in my opinion, Lenny, mythically elevated to a summary of the attitudes of a generation. I don't believe from my point of view, I don't believe that we owned that phrase and believed it because we had a lot of role models who were much over the age of 30 in our culture and society at that time, from John Wayne to Neil Armstrong uh, to Martin Luther King to Bobby Kennedy, um, that we did not uh, view ourselves so self, uh, you know, with such a narcissistic view. And because we were largely as a generation at the age of 30, that was the only a proper state of existence. Um, and that's one of the things that I've been trying to, I guess you could say in my own way, battle against this mythic belief that, uh, oh, look at them now. They're all over the age of 50. Nah, 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 nah. Uh, you know, so much for your ne- never trust anybody over the age of 30. Uh, so that's kind of some of the thinking that uh, I don't know that it gets explored far enough in some of the uh, dialogue about uh, the, where boomers truly were about their youthfulness versus older people. 
Well, I do think that there is a, are enough people out there who uh, want to go after boomers and call boomers for their own hypocrisy, since boomers sort of made its own generational identity, calling their parents on their hypocrisies. So a lot of people will point the finger, as you say, and they'll want to sort of say, oh, you guys are fixated with age, you're no longer young, that's too bad, get over it, live with it, deal with it. But I agree with you. This was never a literal statement. It was a figurative statement. And the whole idea that some, it was the idea that generally people under 30 were the ones who were youthful, the ones who were willing to change, the ones who were willing to go out there and make those changes happen. And so it could be anyone. It could have been somebody who was like Martin Luther King or John Kennedy, or it could have been people well over 30 who were willing to change and adapt to those changes to make this a better country. That's youthfulness. So it, it was that catchphrase, which of course everyone takes literally, but I take it figuratively. Okay, and that's a good uh, summary of that. But you are also touching on a point that leads to another good place for me to segue. Uh, you pretty much point out in the book that in contrast to our parents' uh, idealized standing as the greatest generation, which of course can be attributed to Tom Brokaw in his book, uh, boomers have often been uh, diminished as the worst generation. In fact, Paul Begala, as the, the political commentator and boomer for CNN, uh, wrote a very well-known essay in Esquire magazine in 2000, and in the headline was The Worst Generation. So first and foremost, why is it that boomers get slammed so much in the media and online? Why? Oh, why, are, why is hating boomers the last acceptable prejudice, right? Um, you know, it's funny. I think it comes from a number of sources. You know, when you shake up society, you always become a target. Um, when you hold society to a high standard, you're always going to become scrutinized for any inconsistencies among yourselves. Um, but I do think that there are a number of reasons why boomers are just like one. I think the generation immediately after boomers, who are often the most hostile toward boomers, Generation X as they're often called, um, they grew up under the shadow of boomers. Their youth generation um, was never seen as as interesting or exciting as that of boomers. And to some extent, boomers kept saying, well, we're young, we're the youth generation, and sucked all the oxygen out of the generation afterwards. So there may be a little bit of jealousy and a little bit of resentment on the part of Generation X. But I also think that um, uh, there's a sort of a political motive by some people, and particularly among uh, conservatives, those people who pine away for the social order of the 50s, people who resist the changes that, that boomers have created in American society. And basically, if they can say, ah, oh, you're just selfish, you're entitled, you're trivial, you're narcissistic, and if they can portray the generation that way, then they're hoping that people look at the social changes that boomers have created, women's liberation, you know, uh, uh, civil rights and, and, and sort of exercising your own uh, uh, you know, personal freedoms, if they can call those things narcissistic and selfish, then they have a way to trivialize those social changes as well. So I think to a great extent, there's a bit of an ideological attack on baby boomers because the boomer generation in general has been the one to institutionalize those social changes that have transformed America. So if you see women going out and getting a job and trying to have a career and also trying to raise kids, what's the criticism of, of that woman? Oh, she's selfish. She wants to have it all. And, you know, and therefore trivializing the struggle that she had to get where she needed to be and trivializing her accomplishments because basically all she's being is selfish. Hmm. You know, uh, that's interesting, too. Uh, another direction that the critics sometimes take, and I'm now thinking about David Brooks, the columnist for The New York Times, who wrote a book that caught my attention as well as yours, Bobos in Paradise. And, uh, you know, some critics like Brooks demean boomers by overemphasizing our consumption, such as our alleged lust for sage-infused balsamic vinegar or double mocha lattes. Um, you could kind of come away from that, as you did in your writing, by saying that everything's a pretense. It's all about image. Uh, we, as a generation, never were serious, and uh, we aren't today. 
So um, what do you think about that angle of the critique of the boomers, the consumption aspect? Well, it's interesting because, you know, dial back about 80, 90 years and the 1920s generation was accused of conspicuous consumption. And then dial back to the World War II generation, the greatest generation, and they were criticized and derided for keeping up with the Joneses. And so nobody has pointed out that these generations were singularly materialistic, and I don't think it's fair to attribute that to boomers either. You know, part of the mythology came about when uh, the whole idea of the yuppie came about. If you remember back in 1984, Newsweek magazine had a cover, a Doonesbury cover, with the woman in her running shoes, the sort of typical, stereotypical yuppie, and they tried to suggest that that was what this generation was all about. It was the me generation, a bunch of selfish people who were materialistic and cared about only themselves. Most people remember the headline, they remember the labels, they remember the criticism, but they probably didn't read the article because Newsweek itself even admitted in that article that you know these so-called yuppies represented maybe two, three, four percent of all baby boomers. And in fact, there were probably far more boomers who were working in nonprofit organizations and social services. You know, boomers started far more nonprofits than any generation before them, far more by large numbers. There were far more boomers who were engaged in the betterment of society, but that wasn't sexy to write about. That wasn't snarky to write about. So you ended up with the yuppie label, but, and, which may have been accurate for a small percentage of people, but it really wasn't truthful about the entire boomer generation. So... I think that's partly how this mythology uh, was created and developed, and it serves a very convenient purpose for those people who want to trivialize boomers and boomer accomplishments and reverse the clock on all of that. So we have the critique. Uh, we have critiques that are political. We have critiques that are cultural. We have critiques that are, you know, looking at boomers in terms of uh, obscene consumption, and and obviously all of that is wrapped in narcissism. Um, there's another direction that the narrative seems to be going today, Lenny, and I'm going to read a <laughs> negative review of your book on Amazon, of which it was a small minority, but it's it's a typical critique uh, that I see often. The boomer generation should be called the me generation. They lived beyond their means, spent money they didn't have, and left a giant credit card bill for future generations to pay. So how do you address that? Because that obviously is now the big the big drum everybody wants to thumb. We were going to put the uh, well, nation in hopeless debt, and it you know our legacy will be that. Well, when Ronald Reagan left the nation at what was perceived to be hopeless debt, George Bush the uh, first, nobody criticized the uh, greater generation uh, who was about to retire then for for doing that to America for being entitled and leaving the next generation with a huge credit card bill. So Bill Clinton comes around baby boomer, the, actually the only president who has actually come to sort of own and uh, freely identify as a baby boomer, um, he comes in and leaves a surplus. Did you hear anybody at the time praising baby boomers for leaving the country in a better shape and for, for ending the credit card debt or the sort of national debt that the Reagan and Bush years left us under the greatest generation? You didn't hear a peep about that. So basically, this is just another convenient criticism, another excuse for criticizing when these same people would never have praised baby boomers in 2000, 2001 for leaving our nation in far better fiscal shape than it had been for years. So it's a little bit of a hypocritical conversation when people go after boomers now for leaving us in debt, but didn't praise boomers for leaving us with a surplus just a decade earlier. Right. Well, you know, you're familiar with the famous George Orwell quote, who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. <clears throat> I'm wondering if you're optimistic that the which narrative is going to win <clears throat> as a summary of our generation. Is it going to be a narrative about a bunch of egocentric, narcissistic, self-centered uh, uh, people who sold out hypocritically and uh, spent beyond their means? Or is it going to be more the narrative that you advance in your book? And I certainly like to think I advance in my writing as well. Well, you know, um, we 
our generation, boomers, were very critical of our parents. But as we aged and they aged, we became more generous with our assessment. We celebrated them for their accomplishments. And because we had changed America for the better, we didn't need to keep harping on their shortcomings of the America that they left us with. So we got over it. We allowed them to have their glory days. And so I think every generation sort of bounces against the generation before it at, at points, but hopefully grows to the point that you begin to appreciate that generation's accomplishments. You know, echo boomers, the children of baby boomers, they are the most socially inclusive and the, the, the least prejudiced and bigoted society in our nation's history. And there's a reason for that. It's because the norms that boomers instilled in them and put into place in society they are not just talking the talk, they are walking the walk. And so you've got to hope that down the line, they'll grow up and say, wow, thank you. You left us with a better America in which we respect each other, irrespective of their gender, the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, their status in life, that we are far more inclusive America than we've ever been. And we got to thank our parents, the baby boomers, for setting America straight, changing America's course, and leaving us with the types of values that really are far more in the American tradition. So I ultimately think, and certainly hope, that the thesis that I advance in this book and that you've been promoting yourself and all of your excellent work, you've got to hope that um, uh, you know this becomes recognized, that in the larger scheme of things, how America was transformed for the better becomes the legacy of the baby boom generation. Excellent summary. We will come back for our final segment <clears throat> with Lenny Steinhorn. And I want to talk a little bit about the boomer future because we're not done yet. Stick around. You're listening to the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is have fun, make money, do good. We provide platforms to individuals who have a cause, message, or information that they would like to share with the world. If you'd like to join the FMG family and have your own radio show, please call us at one 800 470 4982. That's 1-800-470-4982. We look forward to hearing from you. I've had the privilege of knowing Professor Lenny Steinhorn for a number of years, and uh, also I've received several emails from him. Uh, they may have been summaries of thoughts he's written elsewhere, but one in particular stands out to me. Let me read just a couple of sentences from it. Ours has been a generation of quiet heroes who have brought greater equality and freedom to institutions and families, who have democratized the workplace, who have turned green into a priority, who have invigorated higher education, who have overturned the old culture of conformity, who have taken the back room out of politics, who have made tolerance, inclusion, and personal freedom the new norms for our culture. Well, I have to say that those uh, those thoughts are thoughts that I also embrace, but obviously there will be those who reject those thoughts. Um, so let's talk about this battle for a better America, uh, one that we're involved in today. Um, and you talk about uh, a number of things that you believe the generation should be thinking about going forward. So what do you believe the generation needs to do to bring more focused and shared efforts around the big one, environmental activism? What is your hope for our generation's involvement in that in the future? Well, you know, I'm a real uh, fan of the Martin Luther King phrase that the arc of history bends toward justice. But, you know, it's never easy, and there are always going to be pushes and pulls and forward moves and step backwards. Um, on the whole, we are so far better off environmentally um, than we were years ago, yet we still have a long, long way to go. Um, and the difficulty on the environment is the following, is that you know we still have an economy where we need to produce things. Uh, people still value progress, and they don't want to see too many obstacles placed uh, uh, on the line of progress. Um, and so the more you produce, the more you use plastics, the more you use electronics, it also creates some forms of pollution that become poisonous for our future. So what we have to be able to figure out as a culture is how to match the idea of economic progress with the notion 
of in, uh, sustainability and environmental protection. They are not inconsistent. They are not mutually exclusive. That's part of changing the next norm about our environmental progress. Um, so that's you know part of it. And plus, we have to sort of educate young people about the values of sustainability, about the values of environmental protection. So that becomes second nature to them. It doesn't have to be acquired. It becomes instinctual. So I think to a great extent, um, uh, this is one of the legacies that boomers can continue to pursue. Um, we can also get involved ourselves once we retire, um, and you do see evidence of many boomers who are start, sort of looking at the next stage of their lives and looking to get involved in things that actually protect the uh, inheritance that we are passing along to our kids. I'm just not talking about money. I'm talking about the inheritance of our planet. <clears throat> we can promote and continue, continue to promote and purchase organic foods and environmentally sound foods and, and, and support environmentally sound food production. A lot of things we can do with our personal behavior, a lot of things we can do with our cultural influence, a lot of things we can do um, with our time that begins to free up at this point in our lives. We may not get to the promised land of absolute pure sustainability in our lifetimes, but as long as we continue to set the norms, lay down the policies, change things for the better, that arc of history will bend toward justice. You know, uh, this whole area of the environmental focus that needs to be sharpened uh, hits home to me in, uh, particularly because I've been very involved in the LOHAS uh, conference and the LOHAS movement. That stands for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. And I gave a presentation at that, and I pointed out something. I put up a slide of photos, and this was really focused on the male half because I have a counterpart, Dr. Carol Orsborn, who talked about the female half in our co-presentation. But on the male half, uh, companies like White Wave, uh, Steve Demos founded that, a baby boomer, Celestial Seasonings, Mo Siegel, Whole Foods, John Mackey, uh, Stonyfield Farms, Gary Hirschberg, uh, Starbucks, Howard Schultz, all baby boomers. And then when we look on the intellectual side of the baby boom uh, male half, you can think of books like Blessed Unrest by Paul Hawken or In Defense of Food by Mo Michael Pollan or The Wayfinders by Wade Davis. And I think this uh, addresses your ongoing argument, Lenny, that this generation uh, is part of the thought leadership of the change of our society and culture in the past, but we persist, and in particular in the area of the future sustainability um, and um, a healthier environment. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely, and I think those are all really good points. And what it tells us is that those values that we were talking about earlier that define the baby boom generation continue to sort of infuse themselves in, into the business, social, and intellectual life of this generation as we move to, toward move through our own life stages. Um, so the influence of all these folks that you're talking about and the businesses that they've created, they have set up an economy that no one would have imagined being around 50 years ago. So, um, so yes, and those will continue to happen as more young people grow up with these new commercial options, the sustainable commercial options, as their norms in life, and increasingly we will see the marketplace of each succeeding generation rewarding those things that protect and preserve the environment rather than destroy and ravage the environment. Looking forward uh, again, are we finished with women's rights? Have we, have we accomplished that objective or is there more work to do? Well, certainly there's plenty more work to do when you think about some of the political issues we've been facing in this uh, election, dealing with just the simple idea of women having access to contraception. Um, when you're also still dealing with uh, a chi a child care, we're a country that in which many parents work, but there's no you know, sort of institutionalized childcare in this country in which people can feel safe that there are government standards in terms of putting their children in places. So parents go through this sort of crazy patchwork quilt 
of of having their children taken care of and 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 parents are forced to constantly to determine whether they can actually take on a job or not so we still have a, a ways to go on that particularly in integrating families into the workplace and knowing that children can have safe and secure childcare i think that really is one of the key and most important issues on that Look, we now have in our colleges and universities, you know, undergraduates, women are about 60% across the board. Master's degrees, women are about 60% across the board. Uh, professional degrees, it's about split 50-50. You really have seen a, such a profound transformation of opportunity for women. The next step really is uh, ensuring that there are no glass ceilings uh, on women's accomplishments and achievements, and I think that really is beginning to change. Those glass ceilings are being broken through. It's slower than we'd like, but it is happening. And also dealing with the issue of families and childcare, because all too often that responsibility often falls by default to the woman in the partnership, relationship, or marriage. Um, so once we start to address those things, we really will see the consequences of equalizing opportunity, enabling women to, to continue to have, have their voice and, and, and work represented in the workplace. Um, and uh, so what was started in the 1960s, it's an unfinished project. But again, I repeat the Martin Luther King statement, that arc of history will bend toward justice. Excellent. Final question. In the area of civic engagement, you um speak to the boomer heritage of creating nonprofits, of getting engaged in alternative areas, uh, unique pockets of our society and culture and economy that have needed support and that have developed nonprofits to address those support issues. Are you optimistic that this generation is going to continue to be engaged in civic life, maybe even more so as we have more time in quote unquote retirement? Are you optimistic? Are you hoping for the best? Yeah, I am. I mean, boomers are also facing something no other generation has faced. We are a sandwich generation. We're really the first sandwich generation. And and, and bravo for American society for making sure that uh, the elderly live longer and have more enriching and fulfilled lives. Uh, you know, and, and we've had that uh, through creating, you know, better nutrition, better health, uh, uh, you know, and better lifestyles among Americans. So people are living longer, but the first generation to address that in terms of their parents living longer and also raising their kids and paying for college education and so on and so forth for their kids has been the boomers. So a lot of boomer energy has been, you know, sort of sort of taken up and absorbed by the lives of their kids, making sure that they can, you know, get an education and become contributing adults. And I think boomers have done a great job on that. But now for many boomers, you know, uh, their parents are aging. Um, and uh, for many boomers, they're dealing with some of the issues of end-of-life health care and end-of-life issues. And I think that's been a strain on the boomer generation that no other generation really has had to face before. So, um, so I think once boomers start to have that time where they're not caught between generations, they will then take that energy, that they, of that giving energy that they have been giving to kids or their parents, and begin applying it or reapplying it back to the civic culture that they helped to create in the 1960s and 70s and set those institutions in place and launch them back then. So I think boomers are going to go back to that because this is not a generation that's going to want to sit on the golf course and just you know, uh, do, you know, do very little uh, uh, beyond retiring. They want to stay engaged. This is a generation that will be idealistic throughout its remaining years and will continue to put the energy of its youthfulness toward that idealism. Okay. <clears throat> and I, uh, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, one of the parts of the conversation that sometimes happen in this show um, is whether or not boomers will create a new elderhood and not in the negative sense of that, meaning, uh, you know, withdrawn, disengaged, but rather become more the wise mentors of younger generations, not only by telling, but showing. And that's a conversation that is advanced in particular by Dr. Bill Thomas, who's been on this show, and he's actually working on a book uh, about that very topic. So I guess the conversation will have to end today, but it will continue long term. I want to thank you, Lenny, for joining us today and sharing your thought-provoking forceful ideas about the role boomers have played 
and our social and cultural narratives, and hopefully will play positively so in the future. Well, thank you, Brent. Very interesting conversation, and, and your insights are always of great value. I appreciate that. Well, listen, I want to thank our listeners for joining the show. As always, you can post your comments and questions on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash generation reinvention. And there will be a link and summary of this show on that page soon. Or you can follow me and send direct messages to me on Twitter at Boomer Marketing. One of the things that Lenny Steinharn does, obviously, other than write great books, and I would encourage you to check out his book, Uh, on Amazon, The Greater Generation. It's as valid today as when it was published in 2006 uh, with a lot of deep insights. He also uh, teaches a course uh, at uh, American University, and it's an interesting course, talking about my parents' generation, understanding baby boomers and how they've shaped us. Uh, If you send me a note via Twitter and with uh, Uh, Lenny Steinhorn's permission, I'll provide you with a a summary of that syllabus because it will provide a reading list and a media list that might help you become more um, deeper aware of who you are as a boomer and where we are as a generation. Would that be okay with you, Lenny, to share that syllabus? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to be teaching that course frequently. So, yes, uh, please join in. It's an interesting course to, to illuminate what boomers have done and their impact on society for this next generation. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thanks. I wish we had more time. We could do this uh, again and again, but maybe hopefully in the future, Lenny, you'll come back. And I want to thank everybody for their taking time to listen to the show today. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Generation Reinvention with your host, Brent Green. Visit Brent at his website at generationreinvention.com. And for archive shows, be sure to visit his show page here on the FMG Radio Network, where our motto is, have fun, make money.